time that I came, two years ago, I brought my wife with me, which was a blessing. You guys were very kind to her. I wasn't able to bring her this time, which turned out also to be a blessing, a minor blessing, because there was chocolate cake tonight. (laughs) Which I would not have been able to have had she been here. So, yay. (laughs) That's right. You're all sworn to secrecy now. There was a uh, boss, and uh, he was kind of feeling like he wasn't getting the uh, respect that he thought he deserved from the people that worked for him, and so he had uh, a sign made up, big letters, yellow letters, that he put it on his door, said, I'm the boss. So that'll show people where things stand, and... That'll put things back to rights in this office. He came back from lunch. There was a little sticky note attached to the sign saying, Your wife called. She wants her sign back. (laughs) You're going to steal it, aren't you? You're going to steal it. Yeah, you'll hear it again. That's exactly right. Well, I don't know about you, but as a Christian, as somebody who is overtly Christian and proudly Christian, you know, I feel like I don't get respect, at least not the way that I used to. This, our culture has gone through a series of shifts, and part of that is that Christianity is not respected in the way that it once was. We are in a much more what the sociologists call pluralistic situation now. Uh, And uh, and so, what do we do about that? And tonight I want to talk specifically about a lot of issues relating to the question of belief and doubt and evidence and faith. And so we're just going to work through those just for a little bit. I hope that we'll be able to talk back and forth a smidge uh, as we do this. It's an area that's important to me. Um, and I, and, and I want to start with this question. This is a series of kind of question and answers that we're going to work through. Isn't there a conflict between faith and reason? Isn't there a conflict between faith and reason? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then down in verse Three, it says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And so, isn't it true um, that faith and evidence are kind of opposites? Notice what it says there. Faith is being certain of what? What you don't see, right? And so, faith and reason seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, Isn't faith just believing something based on um, no evidence? Actually, no. What I want to say is, faith just means believing something based on testimony that you trust. Faith means believing something based on testimony that you trust. And the fact is, whether you're religious or not, that's the way you believe pretty much all that you believe. 
I know that we like to imagine, and our culture likes to imagine, that we somehow can stand on our own two feet intellectually. And our culture says things like, think for yourself. And it's good to try to think for yourself. But let me ask you, how much would you know if you thought entirely for yourself? The motto of the Royal Society of England, which was the first uh, society dedicated to science in the modern sense of the word, uh, was, well, the short version was, this was in Latin, but the short version is, take no one's word for anything. What do you think they were trying to communicate when they came up with that motto? You've got to prove it. You can't just cite authorities and think we're going to believe it. They were rebelling against the way science had been done for about a thousand years, where if you could bring out uh, a copy, an old dusty copy of Aristotle's physics, you could prove your point. It was as good as quoting scripture. You could bring out an old dusty copy of Ptolemy's uh, astronomy, you could prove your point as well. It was as good as, you know, uh, as anything else. And the Royal Academy was dedicated to the idea We've got to go back to the data itself. We've got to go back to observe nature as it is and do that. And and the way they were expressing that to themselves was take no one's word for anything. You can't take anything on authority. But what would it be like if you tried to do science or any other intellectual activity truly not taking anyone's word for anything? There's no way. Well, there you go. You can't. You can't trust their motto to start with. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, If you tried to live standing on your own two feet intellectually, where I can only, I'm only allowed to believe those things that I myself have personally verified, you would be reduced back to the level of a Stone Age. You're not allowed to sit at a table because you don't know how to make a table that's made out of whatever this is made out of. You're not, certainly not allowed to sit at a plast, on a plastic chair unless you know how to uh, injection mold plastic, which I don't know how to do. Uh, you, you, you're not allowed to write on paper. Anybody know how to make paper? I mean, really good paper like this? I don't. Or inkjet printer? I really don't know how to do that. In other words, we are uh, constantly dependent on other people. In fact... This is one of the secrets about human beings. And a lot of what's gone on in philosophy in the 20th century has been about bringing this to the surface. Contrary to, I think, the prejudices of the 18th and 19th century philosophers, it turns out that human beings are smart precisely because they are social. I talked last time about how we are made to be social We are smart because we are social. Now that really runs contrary to our prejudices. Because when we think about people being geniuses, when we think about people being smart, who do we think of? Einstein. You know, our favorite stories are stories of people who buck the system, who go against, you know, what everybody's telling them. We have movies where the guy says... They thought I was mad, mad, but I showed them. You know, we love that story where the one individual goes against the crowd. 
And that has to do with our psychology, especially American psychology. But in fact, Einstein will tell you, just as Newton will tell you, the reason I knew to look at these questions in this way is because of what the vast society of scientists had already done, what they'd already tried. The answers that hadn't worked is what kind of constrained me to go to look in this new place. And that is that story, we can just tell that over and over and over again. Human beings are smart because we are social. That's true in science. That's true in every other academic field. And that's true in our religion as well. We uh, Trust is the foundation of knowledge. People want to say faith and reason. Again, this is, this is another one of these odd uh, fake matchups. It's as if uh, the way we talk, and even in our dictionary definitions of faith, it's as if, well, when you have knowledge based on reason, that's good. If you can't get knowledge, uh, maybe you'll just settle for faith. Right? Well, I don't know it, but I believe it. Right? I don't know it, but I believe it. I think the Oklahoma City Thunder is going to beat the Mavericks this year. I don't know it, but I believe it, right? Okay, well, that's how we use the term now. But in fact, in this larger sense, in this larger sense, uh, all of our knowledge claims are turn out to be grounded on trust. They turn out to be grounded on faith. You can't have a knowledge of any specific thing unless you have a huge framework that's grounded on trust. Mostly it's grounded on trust of people that you, uh, that you think are reliable. You know, I, and, and that's just the way that that works. And so there really isn't a conflict between faith and reason. Uh, there's never a conflict between faith and reason. The real conflicts are always between faith and faith. Now what we do have, I mean, sometimes when we have a conflict between one social group and their faith, and another social group and their faith, <clears throat> the Christians uh, versus some other social group, uh, one side or the other will say, well, we have reason on our side and you don't. Uh, but that's the wrong way to construe that. Uh, both sides are arguing from faith and both sides are arguing using reason. It doesn't work like one or the other. Uh, it's always a conflict between faiths. If you're arguing... And, and, and this, is, this is valuable for us. What we don't want to do is set up a situation where a non-believer, for instance, can just sit back and say, oh man, I can't do that. Uh, sit back and say, well, you haven't proved it to me yet. You haven't proved it to me yet. Uh, if you are in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe what you believe, you have to prove your position but they also have a position to prove as well. They have a, a collection of beliefs that are important to them. And it's important to help them realize that so that you can be on the same uh, playing field. So that's one question. Faith and reason are not uh, opposites. Second question. Isn't true faith free of doubt? Isn't it sinful even to entertain questions? Isn't this the nature of uh, real faith? Is that I am firm and unwavering and I don't have any questions. Yeah, I hope not too. 
Yes? Maybe, uh, maybe. I know that uh, many times some of the things that are in Scripture, James in James chapter 1 says, you know, if you lack something, you should ask God, but what? Ask in faith, with no doubting, because the person who doubts is like what? Like a wave tossed back and forth on the sea. And so, uh, true faith, some people say, is characterized by the absence of doubt. I think faith is knowledge. I think faith is the foundation of knowledge. That's what I. That's what I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. Yeah. I think that's what John says too. Yeah. Well, that's probably true. Let's get back to this question, though. Um, let's read this scripture. Romans four, eighteen through 21. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring bring. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That's the kind of faith that I remember thinking, I guess other people have it, but I don't. I will tell you that one of the reasons Doug's pointed out that I've spent a lot of my adult life working in the area of apologetics, and that's very similar to the reason why psychologists often go into psychology. Psychologists go into psychology because they think they're crazy and they're trying to cure themselves. Sometimes. And I went into apologetics because I was racked by doubt. I, I had lots of doubt. I, mean, I was raised in the church. I went to church all the time. Uh, and I believed it. I really wanted God, but at the same time, I couldn't turn my, you know, questions off. And I'm always having questions. And then when I'd answer those questions, more questions. And so passages like this, at least the way I was taught to interpret them, or at least I thought I'd been taught to interpret them, bugged me to death. Because I thought, I'm never going to be like Abraham. I'm never going to be like them. Unwavering? I waver all the time. And then I realized maybe I had misunderstood what Paul was talking about. You guys know this story. It's the story Paul is referring to. When God comes to Abraham and says, you're going to have this son. Genesis 17, verses 15 through 18. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her, and I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed. And he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live in your sight. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. 
Okay, same story that Paul is referring to. What did Paul say? Without wavering in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, Sarah's womb was also dead. He did not waver in unbelief. But he laughed. Maybe he laughed for joy. He was just so sure it was going to happen that he was laughing for joy. Is that what Genesis 17 is saying? No, because what's his suggestion at the end? Look, I know you don't like Ishmael that much, and it was kind of hinky the way that Ishmael was born, but could we just go with the, you know, the bird in the hand? <laughs> that we, I mean, the kid we've got, could we just go with that? And that's really what Abraham is saying. So explain to me how Paul can say he didn't waver in faith. Could be that Paul doesn't know the Old Testament. Uh, probably not. So what's going on? Well, I think we've probably, this is a symptom of a larger problem. I think this shows us how we, and, and by we I mean kind of in the last 300 years, especially of Christianity, we have tended to way over-psychologize faith. We have tended to make faith a matter of intellectual or emotional experiences inside of our heads. And, and think of it in those terms. And to make it largely a matter of subjectivity. And Paul doesn't really think of faith like that. In Greek, the word faith and the word faithfulness are the same. In Hebrew, they are too. The word for faith and faithfulness is actually from the... The word that means steady. You know? Uh, it, it, to, to be reliable. That's what faith is in Scripture. So what is it about Abraham that doesn't waver when he's laughing at God's promise? By the way, Isaac, Yitzhak, means chuckles. Means Laughter. Baby giggles, well, not quite, but close enough. It, Isaac gets his name from this episode and the fact that also Sarah's here in this and she's laughing too. They both don't believe it intellectually, what's going on. What is it that doesn't waver? It's his trust in God. Well, intellectually, he has a billion questions. Intellectually, I don't think he even thinks God's going to do it. Intellectually, At least he can't figure out how God could do it. So what is it that doesn't waver? He, he definitely doesn't pack up his bags and say, all right, I gave this a good shot, but I'm heading back to Haran to be with my family. Right? You told me to come to this and be a stranger in a strange land, and, and I've been here without my support network, without any family to back me up, because I've been trusting you, but I'm done. That would have been wavering. That's what faith is, and that's what faithfulness is. Uh, the way Paul, I think, often thinks about it. It's, it can't, you can't pull it apart and make faith just a matter of some thoughts or feelings that are going on inside your skull. It's a way of living your life. And he says, Abraham didn't waver. He set his course. He trusted God. And even when his brain was in open rebellion, he continued 
to set his course in trust and faithfulness to God. That's what didn't waver. And that's what needs to stay steady with us. And, and I have found that to be tremendously, tremendously helpful. Uh, the fact is, if you live a real life of faith, you're going to have questions. In Scripture, faithful people are often the ones who express the deepest intellectual doubts. It's not questioning that's the problem. It is unfaithful behavior. When I start using my questions as an excuse to be unfaithful, then I have drifted away from faith. Just having questions is not a bad thing. And I say this very passionately. I deal with 18 to 22-year-olds all the time. And they are, they are pious 18 to 22-year-olds. They are, like me, raised in church. And many of them are afraid that if they ask questions, and I think they may have been taught that if they ask questions, if they ask too many questions, they will lose their faith. And I for one, feel that the, that is the exact opposite of the message that we, the Christian community, should be giving them. Every other faith, if you question it, you will lose it. Christianity, the more you question it, if you are honest, the stronger it gets. I'm going to tell you something. I've questioned it hard. I've questioned it at expert levels. And it can take it. God can take whatever your mind can dish out. And furthermore, I doubt that anybody in this room, I don't think any of us can probably think of a question that some Christian hasn't already thought of and wrestled with. That doesn't mean we're going to answer them all. Faith doesn't require that we be able to instantly answer every question. It just means that there are more resources within Christian faith than, than often we even conceive of. And I tell my students, if you are being challenged with questions, if you're having doubts rising in your mind, that's probably a sign from God that you need to pursue those, not to try and block them out. Because if you try to block them out, there's a part of your mind that's already uh, believing that if you looked very closely, it would turn out not to be true. And that's a dangerous thing to do. So... I encourage my students, and I would encourage you, ask more questions, not fewer questions. We'd be willing to dig. It's a, it's a, it's a strenuous process sometimes. But if, if you're one of those people with that gift, I actually think that doubt is, is a spiritual gift. That's it's going on tape. I'm going to edit just like five seconds out of this one, but... I actually think that God uses our doubts in just the way that was expressed earlier to help us to understand our faith better. And I look now and, and I realize that oftentimes my doubts, my questions were designed, I think, given to me by God to help me push into a deeper understanding of who God is, what the Bible means, what Jesus is, and so forth. All right, next question. Doesn't faith mean believing without evidence? Because you have seen me, you have believed, Thomas. That's what Jesus says to doubting Thomas. 
Because you have believed me, you have seen me, you have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and have yet believed. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. Doesn't that tell us that the essence of faith is believing without evidence? Actually, if you look in Webster's Dictionary, that's the third definition. John Locke has won the victory over the English language because that's the definition of faith he gave. He said, faith is believing without adequate evidence. And we all believe it. Now, we put it in our dictionaries. We teach it to our third graders. That that's the, and that's how we use the term faith, as I have already pointed out frequently. However, that passage in John, John 20, verse 29, Doubting Thomas, he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I can reach out and stick my fingers into the wounds in Jesus. Can you imagine saying that? Can you imagine what Thomas felt when Jesus showed up and said, Okay. There it is. It's a little gooey, but go ahead. Thomas hit the ground. And there's been a series. If you study John literarily, there is a series of confessions spaced throughout John. And the climactic confession is the one that Thomas makes. My Lord and my God. So it's a great moment. And then Jesus says this. He says, well, you've seen and you've believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Okay? Does he mean that it would have been better for Thomas to, to believe without needing any evidence? Well, that's not what the words say. It says it would be better for Thomas maybe to believe without needing sight, to have trusted the other 11 apostles, to not be crazy or liars. And that seems to be what's at stake. The very next verses, 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Does John believe that faith and evidence are opposites? Clearly not, because what does he think he's doing in writing his gospel? He thinks he's giving you things that will help you to believe without having to actually physically be one of the ones who sees Jesus. You'll be able to read these stories about Jesus, and that will be part of what helps you come to faith. I think that's obviously what John thinks he's doing. That's what the other gospel writers think they're doing too. And in fact, can you imagine what the sermons in the book of Acts would be like? If, if the theory that we sometimes use today about faith were true, there are people who say, well, if you have evidence, it wouldn't be faith. Have you ever heard that? So how would Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost go if he believed that? If, you know, say, countrymen, I'd like to give you some prophecies from Joel and Psalms and Isaiah I'd like to talk about the miracles of Jesus. 
I'd like to talk about the things that you yourselves have seen and about what God is doing. But if I did that, that would ruin your faith. So I'm not going to do any of that. Just believe. Well, we don't have any sermons like that because that's not the biblical picture of how faith works. The, the sermons in the book of Acts are filled with evidence. When they're talking to Jews, they use a lot of Old Testament evidence that they're likely to trust. When they're talking to Greeks, they use a lot of Greek poetry and Greek philosophy and, and ideas that they're likely to trust. But the sermons are designed to persuade people using evidence that they might find rational and reasonable to help them open themselves up to the, the amazing thing that faith is. I think faith is obviously bigger than any one set of evidence can accomplish. I think it is our response to God, the voice of our Creator. But evidence certainly helps, and faith and evidence don't appear to be opposed to one another. In the scriptures that we quoted, it was faith and sight that are opposed, not faith and evidence. The New Testament is full of evidence that's given to support faith. All right, well, that leads to another question. If our faith has such good evidence, why can't we prove it to everybody? Why can't we prove it to everybody? Carl Sagan, uh, back uh, during the time when he was doing Cosmos, said... Why? It would be so easy for God. God's got all power. Why doesn't he put a giant cross in the sky? And maybe it turns on for four nights every year and flashes. And I get students that ask me questions like that. You know, why doesn't God just say, okay, tomorrow night I'm turning the moon plaid. And he would turn it plaid or put a big sign on it. Can you imagine a big sign on the moon? That said, made by God. And flashes on and off. Um, why can't we prove it to everybody? Can't we prove it to everybody? Well, this gets into an interesting question. The fact is that uh, I can only prove something to you if we share the same standards of proof. If, and, and part of what our faith is includes our, what, what counts as our standards of proof. We don't like to think of ourselves this way, but again and again and again, if you look back on conversations you've had, you realize that when people's faith, when their fundamental beliefs are under threat, they are very likely to shift what they count as good evidence rather than give up what they believe. Famous example of this from philosophy, uh, David Hume realized that there was a fairly compelling argument for the existence of God based on cause and effect. You know, they're, they're, you know if, if, if everything becomes, begins to exist has a cause then uh, the universe has to have a cause. And what could that cause be? It has to be something that can't have come to exist. And that sure sounds like God. And he, and he knew that was a problematic uh, argument. He was an atheist. Well, he didn't admit it, but he was an atheist. What was his solution? 
He gave up the doctrine of cause and effect. Yeah. yeah. He said, oh, maybe sometimes things that begin to exist just happen. Just happen. Without, without a cause. Without a cause. Is that he believed in uncaused causes. Well, he believed uh, in that there has to be some uncaused cause that could be eternal. Hume is much more radical. He says it doesn't have to be eternal to be an uncaused cause. He just says, we don't know for sure. It's just, he said cause and effect, our addiction to cause and effect, just kind of a habit where our mind happens to be in. It's a habit we've gotten into. Well, my point is this. My point is this, that uh, when people are in an argument about what's most fundamental to them, it can be the Christian faith if you're a Christian, it can be atheism if you're an atheist, it, whatever it is that's most fundamental. How do you answer the fundamental questions in your life? What does life mean? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why should I be moral? Questions like that, the foundational questions, whatever the answers are you have to that, when that's under threat, uh, you are very likely to, to change what you have accepted as evidence rather than allow what you believe to be uh, thrown out. In fact, it looks like uh, we don't have a way to coerce you to give up your fundamental faith commitment. No amount of arguments seem capable of doing that. You have to be willing to do it by saying, what I'm, the way I'm living my life and the things that I've been believing aren't working for me. And I need to try and look at something different. And we think that's a part of how conversion operates. Why can't we prove our faith the way we prove scientific and historical facts? Why can't we prove our faith the way we prove scientific and historical facts? Well, you know, why can't, why can't I prove to you the existence of God the same way we prove uh, the atomic weight of hydrogen? I guess that's one reason. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Why can't I why can't I make it as clear to you that God exists as that George Washington is the first president of the United States? So we do have proof though. We've got tons of proof of God. Well the trouble I mean Think about it like this. The facts about George Washington, the facts about hydrogen, don't make nearly the kind of difference in our life that the facts about God do. And there seems to be an uh, inverse relation between how much evidence I require and how, uh, uh, or there's a direct relation between how much evidence I require and how demanding a belief happens to be. How many planets are there in our solar system? Eight or nine, nobody cares. <laughs> Did you say nobody cares? Yeah, yeah. 
When I was a kid, I loved Pluto. Pluto was kind of the rogue planet out there. It had, had an orbit that was off kilter, and it was kind of cool. It was really cool. Really cold, in fact. And they demoted it. They demoted Pluto. Hurts my feelings. Uh, I now, I used to believe Pluto is a planet. I now believe, believe Pluto is a dwarf planet. Why did I believe Pluto is a planet? How much evidence did I have? I think I have a third grade teacher. She had a little styrofoam model that had Pluto in it. I thought, okay, Pluto. And I think I heard an article on NPR. I mean, I think I was just, a, you know. And it's okay, NPR says Pluto's not a planet anymore. I guess it's not. You know, if, if everything about my life depended on the status of Pluto, you know, who I could marry and how I behave sexually and what I can do with my money and, and you know, what's going to happen to me after I die. And all, if all of that hinged on the status of Pluto, I believe I would ask for more data. You know, I think I would. And in fact, some things are so demanding that data by itself, evidence by itself can never completely put our hearts at rest. There is peace in our faith, but it's not to be found strictly by evidence. If by sufficient evidence you mean enough evidence to, to set your mind at ease, there's probably not enough evidence to do that about the existence of God. There's tons of evidence. But it's not enough to do that. And that's not because God's not proved. It's because what God requires of you is ultimate. And our brains are kind of too small to take on that task alone. Our rationality is kind of too small to take on that task alone. Uh, coming to believe in God is much more like falling in love. And uh, it, it, it is the response of a full person. How many of you have ever had that experience of trying to talk someone out of being in love? Or... Worse, have you ever tried to talk somebody into being in love? Say, you should really like Sally. Let me give you a list of evidences of how great she is. Have you ever tried to have that conversation with somebody? That does not work. That does not work. Evidence is kind of too small for certain uh, beliefs, decisions, life directions that we adopt. By itself. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter. Evidence does matter about who you fall in love with. Dating is a giant, you know, evidence collection. But it's not sufficient by itself. Let's come back to this question. If God wants everyone to believe, why doesn't he give us more evidence? Why doesn't he go ahead and paint the moon uh, plaid or put a giant sign on the moon saying made by God or... Any of those other things. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he give us more evidence? Well, I think he gives us tons of evidence. I think he gives us the evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think faith uh, comes because we encounter the word of God. Um. But think about this. Well, I've got a scripture up here that I think is fascinating. I, I always find this one fascinating. 
Jesus, at the end of his public career in Jerusalem, before he's going to be arrested and uh, crucified the next day, he has this moment. Some Greeks come up, some non-Jews come up and they say, we want to find Jesus. And he takes that as a fulfillment of his ministry in a way. And he says this, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Another said an angel had spoken to him. It's that last set of phrases that is amazing to me. Have you ever wanted to hear a voice from God? Yeah. Yeah. As a kid, I just wanted one time if God would wet the fleece for me, then I'd be set. I'd be good for the rest of my life. If God would just one time speak to me like he spoke to Samuel, or even in the still small voice like he spoke to Elijah, I'd be good, right? Would you really? Apparently not. Here we have a case where God does speak in front of a huge crowd. And some people recognize what's going on. But the other people say, you know, I may have never heard thunder that said words, but you know, thunder could say words. I don't know that it can't say words. You can't rule it out. It's possible. And that tells us something very deep about human nature. If God put a big sign on the moon, made by God, just flashing on and off all night, made by God. Do you think a lot of people would believe? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I actually think that a lot of people would believe. I don't know that it would convert the whole world. I think a lot of people would get serious about church the next, next week. You know, after 9-11, we had a huge surge in... It was temporary, but we had a huge surge in, in church attendance and things like that. So I think people would get, you know, really serious about it. But I think what you said is true, too. We haven't been to the moon for a long time. We would be going to the moon. And we would be investigating those, uh, that sign. And, you know, we'd go up there and, and it would be some sort of... It's in the universe, so it would have some sort of structure that's a part of our universe. I don't know, some kind of glass or at least transparent tubing and some kind of gas in there and some kind of electrical discharge that's happening at a regular... And after a while, even if we had to invent new laws of nature to do it, after a while, there would be, you know, an alternative explanation... Aliens, or, you know, the Democrats, or whatever, uh, have done this. It's not God. Uh, but we would do it, because that's the way humans are. That's the way humans are. Like I said, our faith commitments, the big things, whether I'm an atheist, a Buddhist, a Hindu, or a Christian, the big things are so big that evidence alone's not enough. And I can always shuffle and change things around so I don't... You can't make me be convinced of something I'm not willing to be convinced of. And that's just the way it works. Humans are, seem able to explain away any evidence God gives if we want to badly enough. If we can't absolutely prove our faith, isn't it wiser just to suspend judgment and be agnostic? 
If you're telling me that you can't absolutely prove the truth of Christianity, then that is an argument to be agnostic. And my short answer to that is, no, it's not. Not all judgments are like that. Not all of our beliefs are in the context of academic debates where agnosticism is an option. There are a lot of beliefs I have where I have to choose. To not choose is to make a choice. Like I said, I teach a lot of 18 to 22 year olds. When the 18 year olds come in, they, they sometimes are a little wishy-washy on what they're going to major in. And in your freshman year, it's not uncommon for people to change majors two or three times. You make it up your mind. That's okay. You explore. That's all right. What if they're still doing that four years later? I can't decide. I can't decide. Guess what? The universe, or maybe the registrar, is going to decide for you. You're not graduating. There are some decisions that you can't wait forever on. William James has an essay about over 100 years ago now called The Will to Believe, in which he says, you know, imagine you're, well, I'll, I'll elaborate on his story. Imagine you wake up and your house is on fire and you just kind of still half asleep, just kind of dive out the nearest window and get outside. And it's only when you're outside that you think, uh, oh my goodness, are my kids still in there? Now, do you have good evidence that your kids are inside the house? Do you have conclusive evidence that they are? You don't have conclusive evidence either way. So you should be agnostic? Should spend time perhaps gathering more data? No, of course you can't do that. There are some decisions that don't work like that. Life often throws us situations that don't work like that. Uh, if, if I act in that way, then the universe is going to make a choice for me. Maybe my kids got out, but if they didn't, I'm acting as if they did. And they will suffer the consequences as a result. When I was an undergraduate, I... Um, started dating my sophomore year, uh, Yodi, that you guys met uh, two years ago. And, um, well, I don't know a nice way to say this. I was just a little chicken. I was just a little weenie about pulling the trigger on marrying her. And I was just kind of, um, well, maybe, maybe not. I can't make up my mind. And this went on our sophomore year and our junior year and our senior year. And we both graduated and I still couldn't make up my mind. And in fact, I you know, was in one of my phases where I said, I don't think so. And I'd broken up with her. And I had a friend, really a good guy. And uh, he came to me, which was, you know, he was obeying the guy code. And he said, look, you've been broken up for about six months. And if you're not going to marry her, uh, I think I'd like to start dating her with an it. You know, I became extremely clear in that instant. It was just like it's just... And I did not obey the guy code. <laughs> Instead, I went home and I called Yodi. And uh, we got engaged the next day. 
I'm not joking. This is, this is, this really happened. We got engaged. We had been broken up for six months. We got engaged. People actually congratulated the wrong girl because I had been dating someone else a little bit. And they all, when they heard I got engaged, they went and congratulated her first. I mean, it was really, it was that bad. But that's a good illustration of what I'm talking about. There are a lot of decisions where life doesn't give you the option. If you, if you say, I'm just going to suspend judgment, I'm going to be agnostic, I'm not going to make a decision one way or another, it's acting as if you have made a decision. You just don't have the guts to do it. Because by saying, oh, I can't decide if I'm going to marry Yodi or I'm not going to marry you, I was acting as if I wasn't going to marry her. That's, that's the problem. And that's, that's the difficulty with saying, oh, well, uh, I can be agnostic about this question. Here's the thing. If you say, I'm going to be agnostic about Jesus, I'm going to be agnostic about God, I'm going to be agnostic about God's offer of salvation, I'm going to be agnostic about the purpose of the universe and God's plan for it. If you say, that's, I'm going to, I can't decide. And so I'm just going to suspend judgment. How are you going to live? Are you going to live faithful to Jesus, loving God, uh, trying to bring about the will of God and the kingdom of God in the world? No. You're going to live as if you did have enough guts to make a decision and you decided against Jesus and God and God's kingdom. Right? You're just kind of playing a little mental game with yourself, which is why in the case of Jesus and his claims on your life, in the case of God and his claims on you and the universe that you live in, you don't have the option of being agnostic. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He did not mean to give us the choice. To, to remain on the fence. He says, love me or hate me. You can't be lukewarm. I, I don't know. I, I would have to think about that one for a long time. I would, that, that's a tough question. Yeah. That may be. I'd have to think about that one for a long time. Uh, that's the last of that particular, uh, this particular talk. So thank you very much. Appreciate it.